Welcome to This Week in Surgery Centers. If you're in the ASC industry, then you're in the right place. Every week, we'll start the episode off by sharing an interesting conversation we had with our featured guest, and then we'll close the episode by recapping the latest news impacting surgery centers. We're excited to share with you what we have, so let's get started and see what the industry's been up to. Hi, everyone. Here's what you can expect on today's episode. Hal Nelson is the Vice President of Anesthesia Services at MSN Healthcare Solutions, and he joins us this week to share five revenue optimization strategies for anesthesia providers. The tips and strategies that he shares are incredibly helpful so that anesthesiologists can make sure that they're collecting every dollar that they've earned. These tips are also really helpful for surgery center staff so that they can understand the role that they play as well. In our news recap, we'll cover black boxes for the operating room, new prior authorization rules and changes, a major revamp of the current organ transplant system, and of course, end the new segment with a positive story about a nurse in Connecticut who's awarded the Magnet Nurse of the Year. Hope everyone enjoys the episode, and here's what's going on this week in Surgery Centers. Hi, Hal. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Erica. Happy to be here. Yeah, we're excited to have you. Um, All right. Tell us a little bit more about yourself, your healthcare experience, and what you'd like our listeners to know. Sure. So uh, my name is Hal Nelson. Um, I'm the uh, Vice President of Anesthesia Compliance uh, for MSN Healthcare Solutions. Uh, My background is I started on the the insurance side, uh, worked for several national anesthesia, uh, excuse me, insurance companies um, from the late 80s to the early 90s. Then I've been in billing on the billing side, specifically with anesthesia uh, since 1996. So I've I've worked with a lot of of different practices, a lot of uh, different uh, models, and uh, look forward to sharing my experience. Awesome. And tell us a little bit more about MSN Healthcare Solutions. What do you guys do? So my current uh, employer, MSN Healthcare Solutions, we are a, a, a revenue cycle management or billing company. Um, uh, we have a suite of services above and beyond that, such as our own uh, qualified clinical data registry or QCDR uh, for MIPS reporting. Uh, we have a, a pre-collection a, a patient AR pre-collection solution that uh, we're uh, excited about with a company that we partner with. And um, essentially, we are one of the one of the only remaining privately held uh, national anesthesia billing companies. Uh, most of the others that are in this space are uh, private equity backed. Uh, we are not the sole. Um, the uh, the owners are the gentleman who founded the company, uh, named Bo Trotter, and uh, a lot of the a lot of the the employees that were. Uh, they were with MSN in 1996 when it started, or actually owners as well. So, awesome! Very, very uh, nice company to work for. Yeah, that's great. That's great. And we knew we wanted to do an episode that focused more on the anesthesia providers world because we do normally talk about um, surgery centers, but you know, obviously they're intertwined, and there's a lot that um, our listeners can learn from whether they work at a surgery center or are, you know, part of an anesthesia group. Um, so we thought we, you would be the 
perfect guests to come on and share some tips on how anesthesia providers could optimize their revenue. Um, to kick us off, can you share a little bit about what the landscape looks like right now in general for anesthesia providers? Sure. So right now, there's a uh, there's a, a staffing shortage, uh, nationally speaking, as, as mm -hmm. I think anyone watching this podcast will realize. Uh, it, it's hard to get anesthesia personnel uh, because of a, a shortage in the marketplace that includes anesthesiologists, CRNAs, anesthesiology assistants or AAs. So that's that's first and foremost, that's in the background. Um, also, what's happening is uh, Medicare um, had traditionally had a list of, of surgeries that would only be payable in inpatient settings. If you've been monitoring the landscape over the last couple of years, you've realized that Medicare has become a little more flexible on that. They have uh, they have changed their what they call their inpatient only list to allow for a lot of surgeries to be paid in ambulatory settings like uh, ASCs. So we're seeing a migration of, of cases, especially, especially orthopedic, uh, that are, are moving from hospital venues to ambulatory surgery centers. And that so that creates more more opportunity for for ASC owners and investors that creates more opportunity for anesthesia practices that are looking to cover such uh, locations. So we're seeing a higher volume bottom line of uh, outpatient uh, ambulatory cases uh, compared to inpatient for certain types of surgeries. Gotcha. That makes sense. And I think everyone can, um, you know, understand the staffing shortages that are that are going on across the board. But that's interesting. Do you think that that COVID you said last couple of years, like did everything that happened with COVID kind of start pushing uh, more cases in the inpatient world or you think or sorry, outpatient world? Or, or do you think we were going that route regardless? I, th I think it has less to do with COVID and it has more to do with expense uh, mm -hmm. and efficiency. So if you look at if you just look at dollars and cents, if you look at a, a, a particular surgery that's done in a, in a hospital setting, um, the the uh, insurance companies get a, a, a let's say it's an inpatient, let's say it's an outpatient uh, surgery. So the insurance company gets a bill, a facility bill from the uh, from the hospital. They get a professional professional bill from all of the entities that are involved in, in the case, surgeon, anesthesiologist, et cetera, sometimes pathologist. Um, and I think on the, on the facility bill side, if you compare the hospital outpatient prospective payment system, which is how uh, Medicare, for example, pays uh, outpatient hospitals, and you compare that to the uh, DRG grouper rate, which is how Medicare pays uh, ASCs, it's simply less expensive in many cases to, to do the same procedure in an ambulatory surgery mm -hmm. center uh, than it is at an outpatient hospital. Uh, and then if you if you parlay that with the, the, the staffing shortages, um, it's you're usually in and out quicker uh, in an ASC than you are in an outpatient hospital. Uh, so they're just they're 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 usually more they're typically more efficient. Uh, it's it's less costly, and again, it's not it's not suited for all surgeries, but low acuity, short duration cases, uh, for example, uh, eye cases, uh, GI cases, um, 
now orthopedics um, are, are a good candidate for uh, outpatient surgery centers, just to, to mention a few. Yeah, definitely. And you had mentioned um, dollars and cents. Uh, do you find that anesthesiologists typically understand the billing process and how to make sure they're collecting every dollar that they've earned? Well, it's one thing that uh, that uh, medical providers are not uh, taught in in medical school. Uh, mm-hmm. They're not. They're, they don't really study the nuances of of, uh, of billing, which is a completely different world. It's, yeah. it's um, it, it, there's a lot of detail to it, and those of us that have been in it for a long time uh, like to share what we know. Uh, but to answer your question, I, I, I would say that. The majority of, of anesthesia uh, personnel uh, is really not that well versed on on the billing requirements or charting requirements and how to optimize revenue for their practice. Yeah, yeah that seems to be the, the theme that we're seeing on our end as well. Um, so that's why we're we're here today. We can give our listeners, you know, five real ways that that anesthesia providers can start to optimize that revenue um, and really understand the billing process and start collecting every dollar and make sure they're not leaving anything on the table. Um, so thank you for all that background, but let's let's jump into to tip number one. So I know you wanted to talk about patient ASA classification. So what uh, what advice do you have for that one? So uh, for those that are unfamiliar with this term, uh, the, the patient's ASA uh, status or classification is a, um, is a, a labeling system that uh, each, each anesthesia provider, whether it's a, uh, an anesthesiologist or a CRNA, they're doing the pre-anesthesia assessment with the, uh, with the patient, and they're assigning them a risk category between one and five, uh, five being the highest acuity uh, one being the lowest acuity. Now, in, uh, in in surgery center settings, you're obviously not going to see the really sick patients. Those are going to be seen more in, in hospital venues. Mm-hmm. So for surgery centers, you'd expect to see ASA1, which is um, uh, uh, a normal healthy patient, ASA2, which is mild systemic disease, um, ASA3, uh, which is a little little higher risk level. You wouldn't expect to see anything higher than an ASA one through an ASA three. Mm-hmm. So these are these are um, rankings, so to speak, that the the anesthesia provider gives the uh, gives the patient during the pre anesthesia assessment, which is an interview prior to the surgery. Now the significance of the ASA status is that uh, some insurance companies, like the ones that I used to work uh, with. Uh, will actually pay higher for an ASA three or above. So ASA one and ASA two, the the very healthy patients, no additional payment. Once you get to an ASA three, ASA four, ASA five, again, the only one that's going to pertain to surgery centers is is typically an ASA three. You have the potential to receive additional um, additional reimbursement from insurance companies for ASA uh, three or above. Now that brings me to the issue of why is this uh, even being talked about? Because if you if you were to survey a hundred uh, anesthesia professionals and ask them, uh, this particular patient has the following underlying conditions prior to having surgery. What would you 
what would you assess this patient as being, an ASA 2 or an ASA 3? And this has actually been confirmed through studies performed by the uh, American Society of Anesthesiologists. It, it's very subjective in nature. So you mm-hmm. could have one, uh, one provider who's saying the patient's an ASA 2, another provider saying the patient is an ASA 3. Um, so because there's revenue tied to this potentially uh, with a particular case, you want to make sure that your practice and all of your providers are consistent in how they how they document uh, ASA status for patients. Um, it, it's uh, I'll give you the best the best example on this, Erica, is patients who are uh, uh, who are, are morbidly obese. So there's a, a patient has a BMI status. Uh, obviously, every patient based on their height and weight has mm-hmm. a BMI score. A uh, BMI score of 40 or above uh, constitutes morbid obesity. That is automatically an ASA 3. Okay. Um, however, if you were to ask uh, members of a, of a practice, how do you classify uh, morbidly obese patients? You'd probably have some that would say it's an ASA 2, others that would say it's an ASA 3. So uh, because of that, um, you want to have consistency in your labeling of these patients uh, in this in this scoring classification system. And uh, it, the best practice is to have an internal meeting with your group to, uh, to go over common uh, comorbidities or underlying conditions, decide as a group what you're going to call these, uh, what you're going to classify these as, and use the ASA's uh, tool that they is that is free uh, that, that lists examples of um, conditions that fall into certain ASA categories. So, bottom line is, you want to just be consistent in your in your application of these of these modifiers uh, for billing, and you want to make sure that everyone's charting the same way consistently. Okay, that makes sense, and we will definitely um, put a link to what you had just suggested um, that they can refer to in the episode notes so everybody can have easy access to that. All right, let's go to tip number two. Tell us about anesthesia start and stop times. What uh, revenue optimization tips um, are available there? So the the thing to glean from this topic is that uh, anesthesia start and stop time has a defined uh, period uh, defined by CMS, Medicare, the AMA, who writes the CPT book. It's all the same. There's no variance in, in, in what start and stop time is. Um, so let's define those, those, those two points. Start time is defined as when the anesthesia provider begins preparing the patient for the induction of the anesthetic. And here's the key, the key takeaway here. Either in the operating room or the equivalent area. The equivalent area uh, can be defined as the pre-op holding area in a surgery center. So let's say for a GI endoscopy patient, you you are, um, let's say you're sedating the patient in in pre-op holding. And so you're giving some sedation uh, and then you're moving that patient over to the to the uh, surgical suite for their their procedure. Time can start prior to uh, entering the operating room or the or the surgical suite area. It can actually begin in pre-op holding as long as you have noted that you uh, have administered sedation. 
and that you were continuously present with that patient. So where a lot of groups lose money, unfortunately, just not knowing what the the uh, obscure billing rules are, is they uh, they'll they'll their start time will be OR entry time, and their stop time will be OR departure time. They're they're leaving. In, in, in some cases, they're leaving three, four, five minutes of pre-op time, three, four, five minutes of, of, of PACU time where they were actually physically present with the patient beyond uh, just the, the operative uh, suite uh, yep. number of minutes. And, yep. and just in closing on that, so I, I talked about start time, what that is defined as, stop time is defined as when the patient is stable and is turned over to recovery room personnel which is typically outside of the OR again. So if you're, if you're limiting yourself to procedure room time only, you're probably leaving uh, anywhere between five and 10 minutes uh, of, of billable time on the table for each case, uh, give or take. Um, yeah, I would, I would imagine that, that would add up pretty quickly. One last comment real quick on the, on the, uh, on the time issue. We've actually seen some, um, some facilities where the the anesthesia providers understand what the rules are for for start time, but it's a logistical problem because they can't actually hit the start button until they get to the procedural room. So, mm-hmm. in other words, they're 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 not able in pre-op holding to hit uh, to hit a button that that starts the their anesthesia time. They have to wait until they they enter the room. So that that can be. You know, that can be addressed through talking to your EMR vendor and just finding out how do we get how, how do we get the ability to, to actually hit that button and start time when we're actually beginning sedation and pre-op holding. Yep. So okay. every minute Thank adds you. up is the, is the takeaway there. Yeah. Yeah, I would imagine. Okay. That makes sense. All right. Shifting to tip number three, charting procedural and diagnosis information. What's uh, going on there? So, uh, as as a as anesthesia claims go, um, your your payment is directly tied to the the complexity of the surgery that was that was performed. So your your anesthesia reimbursement is based on what the surgeon did. Um, so uh, charting uh, charting accurately uh sometimes requires if you, if if this information is not already captured through your your electronic medical record or your anesthesia information management system uh if if the surgical specificity is not already being populated there by the surgeon or the surgical tech it's important that you actually document everything that the surgeon did sometimes that requires asking the surgeon, what they're billing for, what they're coding for at the end of the case. Uh, but, but your, uh, I think that the most important thing to know about this is you never wanted to chart the procedure based on the planned procedure. Because as we all know, uh, the planned procedure can, can change midstream. So patients coming in for uh, a certain procedure, uh, the, the surgeon actually ends up doing something a little bit different uh, that needs to be documented to make sure that you are getting paid for the clinical work that you are doing uh, as, a, as an anesthesiologist, for example, or, or a nurse yeah. anesthetist. Yeah. So, yeah, that uh, very, makes sense. Very, 
very important to document um, exactly what the surgeon did. Um, the uh, there are a number of, of surgeries that, depending upon what you write down, it Im- it impacts how you are paid. For example, someone's doing a knee or shoulder scope, very common ASC procedure, so arthroscopy. You write down the planned procedure, which is knee scope or shoulder scope. What actually ends up happening by the the surgeon, the orthopedic surgeon, is they end up uh, doing a uh, knee arthroscopy with a medial meniscectomy, or they end up doing a shoulder arthroscopy with a rotator cuff repair. By writing down that additional documentation, uh, it yields an additional one to two units per case for your same anesthetic that's being provided just by providing greater granularity in the uh, procedural description. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you had to guess what percentage of cases vary versus what's planned versus what actually takes place? Um, in, in a surgery center setting, I would say that um, what's written down on the board uh, for, for what the patient's being, what the room is being booked for, uh, how often that actually changes is is probably not as frequent as in a hospital setting. Uh, so I don't I don't know an exact uh, percentage, but I can give you another example, which is uh, common in ASCs, which is uh, colonoscopies. You know the uh, the the age of uh, screening, uh, recommended age of screening has gone down from fifty to forty five. So you're seeing a lot more uh, patients getting screened at a younger age. A uh, patient comes in, again, planned procedure versus what actually happened at the end of the case. Patient comes in for a, uh, for a screening colonoscopy. It's a Medicare patient. Uh, the the uh, GI endoscopist actually uh, does a polypectomy, so they remove uh, found polyps. If that's not documented by the anesthesia provider, the practice is losing one unit per case. Now, what's a what's a unit defined as? Well, for Medicare, it's about 20, 20 something dollars per case, uh, 20, 20 something dollars per unit, low 20s. For private insurance, it's higher. Uh, but that's the the, the level of uh, uh, of specificity in your procedural description. It needs to include screening pol- uh, colonoscopy with polypectomy. And this can be achieved simply by not writing down the procedure before the case starts and never looking at it again, but at the end of each case, revisiting that and making sure that no modifications uh, are needed. If you write down at the end of the case exactly what the surgeon did, you'll be assured that uh, your billers will uh, will uh, be able to collect uh, what you should be getting for that particular case. Got it. Makes sense. All right. Tip number four, perioperative anesthesia services. So perioperative uh, anesthesia services is really defined more as uh, services that are performed outside of the operating room. Uh, so in a, uh, in a surgery uh, center setting, this is, uh, quite frankly, this is really more suited for, for hospital uh, locations, but I'll just mention it on here because some of your listeners may work in both an ASC and a hospital setting. Uh, but perioperative uh, services would be defined as things that are, um, again, outside of the outside of the OR area. So things like uh, epidural blood patches for a uh, uh, for 
obstetrical patients, um, uh, difficult IV starts that are not uh, where you're being asked to come place a, a, an IV uh, for a patient, um, TEE services, which are more synonymous with cardiac cases in, in hospital settings. There are a lot of things that anesthesiologists do outside of the operating room that are billable and, and reimbursable by insurance companies. The issue is, um, are, are they being charted and are they being uh, actually identified and sent to the billing company for uh, uh, to go out on a claim? So uh, perioperative services. And another one is, is post-operative pain rounds. Again, hospital setting, so not ASC setting, but uh, patient, uh, a patient has surgery on day one. On day two, the, uh, the anesthesia provider rounds on that patient and does a, does a uh, brief uh, pain progress note. That mm-hmm. too is, is outside of the operating room, but it is billable and payable, uh, by insurance companies when medically necessary. So just to give some examples, there are a lot of clinical things that, that you may do that you may not realize are billable, which actually are. Uh, so it's always best practice to consult with your, your billing company and just say, hey, these are all the things that we are. These are all the clinical ev- events that are occurring for our practice. Some of them are in the OR. Some of them are outside of the OR. And make sure that there's a, uh, a way to get the note that you're charting for whatever service you're doing to the biller to make sure that they're not just looking at a surgery schedule and saying, OK, we've reconciled all of your cases We've captured everything that you did. You really can't say that unless you're looking at all of the perioperative um, services as well. Right. Yeah. I guess just going back, it kind of reminds me of what you were talking about with the start and stop times. Like, don't don't sell yourself short on all these these different things that you're doing and, and time that you're spending with patients. Um, all right. Our final tip here: pre-op H and P's. So pre-op H&P, so that's essentially the history and physical that you'd, you'd expect a, uh, a surgeon to do um, mm-hmm. prior to, uh, to to doing a case. It's a, it's it's similar to the um, the pre-anesthesia assessment. You're 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 evaluating the patient prior to surgery and uh, sometimes admitting the patient in a in a hospital setting. Uh, pre-op H&Ps um, have become more popular in the anesthesia realm uh, because it, it, it kind of falls into the category of perioperative medicine. It's, it's outside of the operating room. Uh, it's been proven that um, when you have someone screening patients prior to their surgery, especially uh, with, uh, uh, with uh, medical personnel uh, evaluating patients prior to their case, it has, uh, it has been shown that it will lower cancellation rates and improve clinical outcomes by, by having a, a perioperative clinic, uh, especially involving uh, anesthesiologists uh, to assess these, uh, these patients uh, pre-procedure yeah. or, or CRNAs. So uh, what this means is uh, you're, you're not just doing your, your pre-anesthesia assessment. You're doing something more comprehensive. You're evaluating the patient uh, before their case, uh, you're sometimes consulting with other medical professionals on uh, things of concern. And um, it, it allows for a, a practice as long as, and I want to specify this, as long as the, the, uh, 
the pre the pre anesthesia assessment and the surgical H and P uh, are are separate and distinct documentation wise. Uh, one 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 document can't serve for both. But if you are an anesthesia mm-hmm. provider and you are working with your facility, say in the ASC, to screen these patients prior to them being seen, if you have a, a separate document with which is a uh, a preoperative history and physical uh, to be used for uh, OR efficiency purposes. And, uh, and then you have a separate, a separate uh, anesthesia record that contains your, your pre-anesthesia assessment. Um, you can bill for uh, an evaluation and management code uh, if it is considered to be a patient at risk. Uh, you wouldn't necessarily be able to bill for every single patient that you saw because that is uh, that is included in the surgeon's uh, global fee. Uh, mm-hmm. But if you are doing this for the sur- the uh, facility and the patient is identified as a, uh, a, a potentially at-risk patient, you've, you've done a, you've performed an evaluation and management service uh, separate and distinct from your, uh, from your anesthesia event uh, that could be uh, billed out to insurance. Examples of this, Commonly seen are, uh, you will sometimes see podiatrists or oral surgeons that don't do their own, their own, uh, their own surgical HMPs in certain venues where anesthesia, uh, performs that task. Uh, and, and we've certainly seen it with other, other specialties as well. So uh, that's sure. something to consider. Uh, and again, this would really apply to, to ASCs and into uh, non ASCs alike. Perfect. Thank you. All right. Last question here. We do this every week with our guests. What is one thing anesthesia groups can do this week to improve? Uh, the, the one thing that I always go back to is uh, it just kind of revisiting this, but it is to re-examine your practice of, of when you are documenting not only the procedure, but the diagnosis mm-hmm. on your anesthesia record. Uh, I think what you'll find is a lot of practices document this at the beginning of the case and never look at it again. If you if you establish a practice of, of really looking at this twice, once before the case, you're putting down what the plan procedure is and what the pre-op diagnosis is. If you incorporate a second step, very simple, of simply looking at the procedure, looking at the diagnosis, seeing if anything has changed or needs to be modified, and, uh, and amend the record as needed at the end of each case uh, or add to the record at the end of each case, you will find that this allows, this provides to your billers more information. Uh, we already talked about examples, but it provides more information for the billers to submit a correct claim and for you to be paid uh, for the clinical work that you did without being uh, losing revenue and being underpaid. Perfect. All right, Hal, thank you so much for all the great advice and we appreciate you coming on. Thank you, Erica. Happy to be here. As always, it has been a busy week in healthcare, so let's jump right in. 
You have likely heard of black boxes when it comes to airplanes, but now they are making their way into the operating room. 24 hospitals in the U.S., Canada, and Europe have implemented the OR black box, which gathers video, audio, patient vital signs, and other data in the hopes of reducing medical errors, improving patient safety, and improving OR efficiency. The article, which was published by Becker's ASC, gives a few examples of how these black boxes are being used in practice today. The first is Duke University Hospital. They have installed these black boxes in two of their operating rooms, and since doing so, they said they have used their findings to reduce the amount of time it takes to prepare an OR for the next procedure. Um, They also are considering using the box as a teaching tool for training nurses. And then over at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center, they're using five black boxes to understand the characteristics of a high-performing OR team, which is really interesting. Now, of course, with the good comes the bad. Some do worry that the black boxes could be used to um, kind of point the finger and, and punish doctors if something goes wrong or even be used in malpractice lawsuits. Um, but since the data is completely de-identified and some of it, the majority of it is deleted after 30 days to protect privacy, it doesn't seem to be a huge concern for most and nothing like this has come up yet. Um, and I think the more data points we can collect and analyze, hopefully the better the patient's outcome will be. So I'm excited to see what other findings come from this new technology. Our next story comes from the Wall Street Journal, and it's all about the dreaded paperwork that drives everyone in healthcare crazy. The paperwork required by health insurers to get many medical procedures or, or tests done is getting rolled back a bit. Uh, which is hopefully music to everyone's ears. <laughs> United Healthcare, the largest health insurer in the U.S., said it would cut its use of the prior auth process starting in the third quarter of 2023. So simply put, it plans to remove many procedures and medical devices from its list of services that require that prior auth sign-off. Um Now, prior authorization has long been a source of frustration among doctors. It it actually creates such an administrative headache for some and can be so burdensome that many practices and hospitals employ staff dedicated just to dealing with the paperwork. Um, And then for patients, uh, in an AMA survey of 1,001 doctors last year, 94% said the prior auth process delayed care in some cases. And what's even scarier One-third said the process led to a serious adverse event for a patient because care was delayed. Um, So the Cigna Group, another huge insurer, plans to do the same as UnitedHealthcare and has been removing the requirement um, for about 500 services and devices since 2020. So while we haven't found a perfect solution yet, providers seem to be listening and have gotten the ball rolling to help ease the burden that is prior authorization. Switching gears to a more somber but also hopeful story, the U.S. is planning to do a major revamp of the current organ transplant system as 17 people sadly pass every day waiting for organ transplants in the U.S. alone. 
Around 140, sorry, 104,000 people in the United States are on the wait list for an organ transplant, and experts say the current system is ineffective and also lacks equality. Uh, Different groups of people based on race and also geographic location are served differently, and then wealthier folks have the means to travel where organs are available. Um, a little history. The current system was built in the 80s um, and then desperately needs to be revamped according to several different experts in the article. The United Network for Organ Sharing has been the sole manager of the nation's organ transplant system since 1986, and the group has essentially operated as a monopoly ever since. Uh, The new plan would split up responsibilities between the existing network and the government and create an independent board of directors, as well as produce an online dashboard that would give the public more information on on the process as a whole, but also organ retrieval, waitlist outcomes, and demographic data on recipients. Um, it, It seems to be a thread throughout that there's just no transparency right now or accountability, um, from the family and, um, family's perspective and those who are on the wait list. So unfortunately, they didn't give a time frame for when the changes would be implemented, but I hope for the patients and families that they are able to roll out changes very soon and very quickly. And to end our news segment on a positive note, today we are recognizing Michelle Santoro, who was honored with a Magnet Nurse of the Year Award. She works at the Yale New Haven Hospital Heart and Vascular Center, and recently she identified a dangerous issue that disconnected thousands of cardiac patients worldwide from an external monitoring device platform after a vendor performed a software update. She has developed, uh, uh, you know, in addition to that, she has also developed a cardiac monitoring database set up to identify potentially life threatening arrhythmia. She fixed a gap in the follow-up for patients with remote cardiac monitoring devices. And then she also pioneered a new process to prepare patient skin for surgical procedures. She was recognized for her innovation and passion and as a hero who has saved thousands of lives. And that news story officially wraps up this week's podcast. Thank you, as always, for spending a few minutes of your week with us. Make sure to subscribe or leave a review on whichever platform you're listening from. I hope you have a great day and we'll see you again next week.